You're listening to Public Announcement. I'm James Ellis. And I'm Chris Black. And it looks like we are getting back into a little groove. Well, yes, you know, now that we've properly outfitted our Little Italy production facility with custom sound treatment, uh, you know, so we can we can record on demand. 24-7. 365. From the greatest city in the world. New York. New York. Capital. The Big Apple. Of the world. Our New York City guests can just pop in. You know, we hit a few buttons. Bang, bang. The tubes do need to warm up. You know? Okay, yeah, so it's, it's 15 minutes or whatever before the machines warm up. Th- these aren't just machines. Excuse me, I, I apologize. The Class A circuitry. Thank you. So 15 minutes before the gear is ready to deliver our signature sonic palette. <laughs> right, yeah. But after that, bang, bang, we're broadcasting, baby, coming to you live. Yeah, live to tape. And while we're talking about production, we should follow up on the previous episode where we asked the listenership for help in finding an audio editor for this podcast. There was serious interest. A lot of strong prospects. A handful of folks reached out about working with us on podcasting projects, and we received some fun emails, you know, some thoughtful and, and like, well-written emails. On the previous episode, we also asked applicants to provide a bit of commentary on the song that we ended the show with. The answer, of course, is that we ended with David Bowie covering Morrissey's I Know It's Gonna Happen Someday from Maz's third studio album, Your Arsenal, released in The Year of Our Lord. 1992. And, but a year later, 1993, David Bowie reinvents yet again, marking the start of an artistic renaissance with his 18th studio album, Black Tie, White Noise where he reconnected with legendary hitmaker Nal Rogers to craft a stylistically ambitious, sophisticated, modern urban soul record. A record that included a cover of Morrissey's I Know It's Gonna Happen Someday, which was just released. And I love that. Like, you're Bowie, and you're covering a just-released Morrissey song. Your arsenal was probably still charting. I mean, you're Bowie, man. That's what you get to do. So, yeah, we did get some good Bowie-Morrissey stories from applicants. Shout out to Ali from Auckland, New Zealand. Global listenership. He commented to say that he thinks Morrissey appreciated David Bowie covering his song. Zach Albright from Michigan's West Coast commented that Bowie's vocalizations, complemented by choral backing vocals, changed the eerie context of the original in an inspiring way. Michael Smith, a senior at the University of Florida, shared that his earliest Bowie memory is Bowie as the Goblin King, Jareth, in 1986's Labyrinth. Martin Powell, a Mississippi native living in Los Angeles, much prefers Maz's version of the song. Martin wrote a, a very good email, by the way. A real audio professional. Oh, sounds promising. We heard from lots and lots of folks, and we want to say we appreciate the interest. So, uh, so thanks. Uh, yes, th- thank you all. However, there is one person that truly, truly stood out. Jose Guzman. He has a podcast called The Payday Podcast, and we became, like, uh, internet friends about a year ago. He was already a friend of the show. Yes, and we, we reconnected over the holidays because, uh, well, I should explain that Jose is a skilled craftsman. And we needed help building out our Little Italy recording facility. Beautiful work. Beautiful, yes. And when he asked what was on deck for the pod, I told him we were recording an entire episode about looking for an editor. He was intrigued. He was. He was interested. But I was like, you know, look, we got to cast the net wide on the pod, you know, see who bites. But I told him, like, he should listen to the episode and let us know what he thought. And he did not fuck around. Uh, <laughs> Jose shared uh, with us what I would describe as a, uh, as, well, prepared remarks explaining why the job was his. So we'd like to share a bit of what Jose submitted to us. Uh, and this is with his permission, of course. So here's what Jose sent us. Hey, how you doing, public announcement? James, Mr. Black. Fresh off the streets, talking to the people, is yours truly, Jose Guzman, also known as Goosey Baby in the Twitterverse. I'm the head honcho over at the Payday Podcast, and, uh, you know, I can be found wandering around New York. I'm a product of the boroughs, Brooklyn specifically. Each show, I go out and I ask my neighbors to weigh in on global and local affairs. I keep my ear to the streets, so when I hear public announcement is looking for an editor, I felt it was imperative that I reach out. You gotta know, I'm your guy. So let's not be shy. Let's go over these requirements. Requirement number one. You must possess a general proficiency with audio programs, specifically 
Logic Pro X. Let's be clear. I fuck with Logic heavy. You feel me? I know about EQ, reverb, compression, and delay. Wow, I'm strong out of the gate. Jose continues. In factuality, it's dangerous for me to edit outside because the way my fingers twist up with these hot keys, people think I'm throwing up gang signs. This is old New York. We ain't in Kansas, beloved. Well, I know you appreciate hot keys. I really do. Requirement number two, you have to be smart. I'm smart as a motherfucker. <laughs> okay. Requirement number three. You have to be cool. Uh, well, we already know Jose is cool. I'm lit. Uh, so that one's easy. So let's get to his Bowie commentary. All right, so thoughts on Bowie. My initial introduction to Bowie was Labyrinth. I have nightmares to this day about that movie. Forget about the baby. I had a Labyrinth-inspired nightmare just a week ago. Don't defy me. He raised the creepy factor in that movie by a magnitude of 11. When I decided to do this, I thought I'd actively listen to young Americans. Not fuck with Bowie. Young Americans blew my mind. Luther Vandross in the background, flanked by certified soul singers, Bowie doing weird white guy stuff. imagine myself and my weirdo friends smoking pot and not giving a fuck about what the social police think. The track is inclusive as fuck. While doing my research, I unearthed some Nazi skeletons in Bowie's closet. We all have skeletons in our closet, but it's like, you can't just get caught with Nazi apparel. <laughs> Perhaps the Duke wasn't self-aware enough to know that that was a bad move. Maybe he didn't care. Maybe this is a testament to why you should stay away from cocaine and Mussolini. <laughs> Personally, I think it was the cocaine. No. No, bro. Finally, before I get out of here, I think the answer to the quiz referenced in Help Wanted was black tie, white noise? Anywho, I think that about wraps things up. Thanks for your time and see you in the Potterverse. Stay black. <laughs> Incredible. I love this guy. And now all of you at home, the global listenership, get to judge Jose's editing skills for yourself. Uh, starting from this point, Everything you hear will be edited by Jose Goosey Baby Guzman. Edit point. Well, now I think we, we can just get to our conversation with Nomi, right? I wanted to make sure we're clear in our instructions for Jose. Yeah, I mean, maybe a song, uh, then we intro yeah. her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, actually, you know, let, let's just intro her real quick, and, and then we'll put the song in as we get to the conversation. Cool. Okay, today's guest, Nomi Fry. The legend, the uh, inimitable Nomi Fry. Is, is that how you say it? No, I can't say the word. Inimitable? Inimitable. Try it that way. The legend. The inimitable. <laughs> you wrote it. I know I did. Because it's a word that I use all the time. Inimitable. But never say. Beyond imitation. I'll just say, the, I'll just cut it. The legend. Surpassing all others. Nomi Fry. I know Nomi is a writer, and um, I, I know how to pronounce her name, as I'm very aware of her strong Twitter presence, but I'm still a little fuzzy in all the rest of the details. Uh, well, Nomi is currently the copy chief at T Magazine, but recently has accepted a position as a staff writer at TheNewYorker.com. We call that the big leagues, baby. <laughs> she is also the coolest mom in bed -Stuy. Quite the resume. Yes, but but her and I, I mean, we just love all the same dumb shit. Just everything stupid that this world has to offer. Reality TV, British music. You know, I, I could, Celebs. I could go on. Yeah. yeah, yeah. All the big important stuff. But Nomi is brilliant in a traditional sense and in the fun Daily Mail TMZ way. <laughs> Best of both worlds, man. Well, I do love her work on Twitter.com. I am looking to get deep, though. Um, understand what is behind that much-loved persona. Are we going origin story? Yes. Yes, we are. <laughs> uh, you know, and I know parts of it, but I think the world 
needs to hear it in full. Agreed. Uh, cue the music, bro. Let's go. Should we say what the tune is? Though? No, 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 no. But because this musical selection isn't really thematically relevant, you know, to the doesn't doesn't matter. It's just a record we have in rotation. People either know it or they won't. listening to Public Announcement. I'm James Ellis. And I'm Chris Black. My tennis elbow's acting up when I play these air drums. Check out this drum fill. It gets real big. You rock. I'm taking a ride with my best friend. Hi. 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 Look at the setup. Incredible. Pro gear. Pro gear prizes. Yeah. Um, I told you this is different than some of these other little podcasts. Right. Yeah. Get into the day. Just to kind of set the mood here. Ah, the 101. I knew she would know it. Depeche Mode. This is actually a Depeche Mode fan podcast. <laughs> that's, that's what it's turning into lately. We've been listening to this record a lot. It's actually pretty invigorating, to be honest. Oh my god, it's so amazing. It's like there's nothing more amazing. <laughs> you know, I want to kick this off. I think we're going to start current day. Current day. And let's talk about this exciting new job you just got. Walk your fans through it. Okay. So I have not yet actually started, but uh, I'm about to start at the end of the month, at the end of February. I'm going to be a staff writer um, on the New Yorker website. And I'm moving there from T Magazine, where I've been the copy chief for the past four years, or approximately four years. And um, over the course of the past couple years, I've been writing for the New Yorker website a little bit and for other places as I'm well. I'm familiar with your work. Thank you, Chris. I'm moving from being an occasional contributor, I guess, to being uh, Like on staff. Staff, yeah. That's exciting. I'm a little freaked out. I really hope not to fuck it up. I think you're pretty well suited for the job, though. I mean, I, I hope so. I hope you're right. You know, you had a runway to test. I did. Yeah. I've done the sort of thing that they want me to do. Now the trick is to do it like as my job. Yeah. So you'll fully be diving into basically like pop culture. I think mostly they want me to write about pop culture, which is great. And also I, I can probably do some higher forms of culture. Uh, gross, but continue. Uh, if they're not taken by other staff writers. So, you know, obviously they have dedicated people for movies and TV and yeah. art and so on. But I could potentially also dive into those subjects if it's stuff that isn't covered. Well, this seems like an exciting shift because you've been a little bit um, <clears throat> behind the scenes. Behind the scenes of pop culture? No, no. Forefront of pop culture. Behind the scenes at Team, you know, Copy Chief is, oh, a, very yes. different, is a very different yes, job. Yes, yes, yes. It's a transition to being, I mean, I guess I've been like front facing as a freelance writer sure. for a while, but yeah, this will be my first foray into like a fully front facing position. It's uh, like the difference between being like an interloper somewhere versus like I'm a staff writer. This yes. is like really my job. I'm Yes. Part of this team. So I have a lot of potential to kind of ruin things from the inside. Mm. Uh, That's exactly where you belong. <laughs> You're at absolute risk for them. They're, somebody's not happy about this, but somebody else pushed it through and now you have a job. Yeah, I know. Somehow I made my way in there. It's the American dream. But you know what? Let's reconvene in like, I don't know, six months and we'll see how, I, how I've been doing. We'll I, see. Yeah. I hope not to disappoint you. Well, that, and myself. Your fans are are waiting. <laughs> patiently, patiently waiting. Um, congratulations. That's very exciting. Thank you. Yeah. I'm really excited. I think there's probably going to be a learning curve just in terms of like how I adjust to like writing full time, you know, which I've never done. I think maybe having this like added pressure of like performing just like 
producing, I guess, more consistently than I have before. I'm hoping that maybe counterintuitively it'll just like force out some things that wouldn't have come out otherwise when I had a more, I mean, I've always like worked hard. (laughs) I mean, I've always had a full-time job. And then on top of that, I would do the freelance writing, which was obviously also stressful. But then I could more pick and choose and be like, no, I I don't want to do that. And this, and here I think, Hopefully, I'll be mostly writing about things I want to write about. But, but you'll be out of your comfort zone sometimes. I'll be out of my comfort zone. If a subject grabs you and you and you want to write about it, that seemed a lot easier than being assigned something, you know, and having to write about it. Yeah. You know, because your editor wants to run it tomorrow. You know, that right. like that seems a lot scarier to me. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I'm scared of that, for <laughs> sure. Yeah. But I think probably... I'll have to do that sort of thing and I won't like it very much, but I, it'll be for like the greater good, so to speak, or just like it, it'll be my job to provide the content. You're a team player. I'm a team player. I'm also a self-starter though. Mm. <laughs> mm. Well, you know, uh, like some people can produce on demand. They can quickly create something out of nothing. It just pours out of them. It does not pour out of me. That's what I've done my whole yeah. life. So I don't know. I can't relate. I, I don't even have a choice. It, it happens to pour, me. Yeah. It happens. Yeah, I wake up and I shit it out and I keep moving. But like a Ryan Adams, like it just happens to him. Mm. These songs, you know, pour out of him. Remember when Ryan Adams unfollowed me on Twitter? I do. Yeah. <laughs> she got the unfollow during the Strokes debacle. No, I got the follow. Oh, and the then Strokes he unfollowed debacle. after? Yes. Oh, he didn't like your content. He didn't like it. He thought he would. He <laughs> followed. He followed for maybe like six months, maybe. Oh, so he gave you plenty of time yeah, to well, fuck up. Yeah. And you dug just, your own grave. You know, Ryan just decided it's not for him. And, you know, I feel sad, but I respect it. And <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's he, just part of the platform. He gave it's you a just, chance. He gave you a chance. He gave me a chance. He gave me a fair shake, for sure. And Ryan, I just want to say no hard feelings. Well, he definitely listens to this podcast. So, <laughs> I mean, that's I'm glad you're speaking directly to him. I mean, we were a little slightly concerned making fun on the Lizzie's episode, you know, using certain tracks of his. Yeah, because I'm a well-documented fan, lifelong fan. Yes, I know that about and, you. And I get roasted quite a lot for that because I don't think people understand the artistry sometimes. No, I, I like him. I, I still like Ryan, I still like you. <laughs> I feel like this is a per- this is personal for you. you just want- yeah, I don't. You you probably never listen to his music. You just want the follow. I mean, <laughs> no. I mean, I've I've listened. I'm not like a huge fan or anything, but sure. you know, I I I know his music. Well, I've publicly said this before, but I went and saw him alone at the Apollo. That's really in the recent history. He was, it, was it just him solo? No, he had the band. He had it was the full band, band okay. at, at the Apollo. But I realized then that my life had changed because I love sitting down. I like love it's seated yeah. and it just changes the whole experience. I like sitting down myself. We're sitting right now yeah. just for the blisters at home. And it's a pleasure. Well, you know, we have you here though. <clears throat> yeah, sorry. I, I went off the rails. Oh, no, 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 no worries. We go yeah. off the rails. This is a general interest podcast. Okay. The most popular general interest podcast. <laughs> uh, so we had you here because I feel like, you know, you're a known personality. Am I a prestige personality? You're a prestige, yeah, you're a prestige personality. As, as Rachel Tashjian um, <laughs> yes, yes. noted on uh, Failing Upwards. Former guest of this podcast. Mm. True. One of our favorites. Um, but, you know, you're a known personality, but I feel like if they don't know you personally, they might not know, you know, where this all started. Okay. So the original origin story. Origin story. I think these details trickle out, but I want people to come to publicannouncement.org <laughs> and be able to forever get the full story straight from the horse's mouth. Okay. So how far back do you want me to go? I mean, I can start from the very beginning. I don't think we need like toddler years. Okay. I would say high school, college. So, uh, okay, let's see. So I was born in Israel. I think uh, people, some people know that. We can refer to that as the motherland. It's the motherland. Yeah, I was uh, born in Israel, the motherland, (laughs) in the city of Haifa, which is uh, north Northern Israel, <laughs> vaguely. The top bit. The top bit, yeah. It's up, there. it's up there at the top. But Israel is very small, so it's only like an hour from Tel Aviv. But So I, I was born there, but since a very young age, I was always yearning for the big city. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, from a young age, you knew who you were. Exactly. From a young age, I knew who I was. Wouldn't this be a great world if insecurity and desperation made us more attractive? Albert Brooks and Broadcast News. So I did have a connection to America as a child and as a teenager because my father, who is now retired, but he's a, he's a scientist. And so we would go to America for his sabbaticals and for summers when he did research. And we would always go to Seattle. 
So from a very young age, like when I was actually, these are toddler years, I was like three, the first time I came to America, we would spend a lot of time in the States. And so I guess this is part of the origin story that I always had this duality of like being Israeli and being not, not American and most of the time living in Israel. And this is like pre-internet. and We don't like to talk about that time. I know. It's a rough time, but it created this thing where I felt like I was better than everyone because I knew stuff that they didn't know because I would, you know, in the 80s and the 90s, I would go to America. and You came back with all the cool records? Yeah, or clothes or whatever, or magazines. So... I didn't really feel like I was better than everyone else. Okay. No, I, I definitely did. I definitely did, too. I mean, I would say I felt like I was better than everyone else and also that I was worse than everyone else. Anyway, moving <laughs> moving along. So I had that sort of doubleness of like being Israeli, and, but then like spending time in America and sort of like trying to pass as American or like trying to pass as someone who knows about American culture, which I did, but in sort of fits and starts because I wasn't there all the, all time. the time. So I... I think I developed this sense of like wanting to know everything and sort of being in love with everything, but also having this criticality that comes from being outside things. So the sort of like inside outside thing. So you're spending more and more time in the U.S. The permanent othering is beginning to take hold. Just give us a, a mile marker. Like, where are you? What year? What were you listening to? Like, help situate the listenership. I was living. I was in ninth grade in Seattle when grunge broke. So that was like a moment, I guess, right? You know, I'm, I'm, I don't love grunge. I don't know that I love it. But, but would I, you ever revisit Nirvana? Yeah. I like have no interest in Nirvana. It's like very occasional. I'll put it on. I don't know. Never think about it. I mean, you know what? I would listen to like Nevermind. I okay, would. interesting. It, because it's like it's pretty powerhouse. It's. Just, I, I you know. agree. I just don't think about putting it on. I just would never listen. I mean, to I that. would. I wouldn't like. Yeah, it's not like my go-to, but I would like. You would catch a wild hair and put on Nevermind. Yeah. If like on a plane comes on the radio or something, I, then I'm like. <laughs> Hell yeah. This is amazing. Turn you know? the fuck up. Turn the fuck up. Everything alternative. New rock. I would go as far as to say that this situation of like, as a young person being in America, coming from a place that's not America, completely changed my life and like determined my interests and like my trajectory and everything. It became kind of like my life's passion in a weird way. Yeah. Culturally, I guess. So when did you move to the U.S. full-time? So I moved here full-time to go to grad school in 2002, like as an adult. That's the, that's the first time. So Ohad, who's now my husband at the time, was my boyfriend, and we moved from Israel together. And he's an artist, and he went to do an MFA at Columbia and lived in New York. And I got into a PhD program for English literature at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. Initially, I had an apartment in Baltimore, and I would like drive up to New York every week. So I would try to spend as much time in New York as possible. Well, if Baltimore is the option, I'm spending as much time anywhere Yeah. Else. Some people like really um, like Baltimore. I don't know any of those people. You know, thinking back on it, I'm like, wow, how did I do it? Because I came to America. I didn't know anyone. The program I went to, I mean, I'm not sorry. I, I ended up not finishing my PhD. I ended up getting my master's and leaving. But I really developed my writing there, but it was also just like the worst experience with like the worst people. <laughs> like the, the program or the whole of Baltimore? The program. You know, I have some very good friends still from there. Sure. And there were some lovely, very smart people. But on the whole, it was a very intense, not at all pleasant experience. How long did you do it for? Uh, <laughs> five years. That's a long time. Oh, because you were going for that PhD? Yeah, because I, I dropped out, essentially. So the last two years I wasn't living, I didn't have an apartment in Baltimore anymore. I would come, fourth year I didn't have to teach, so I just lived in New York full time. Fifth year I had to teach, so I would drive down and literally try to spend as little, like I slept over at a friend's house and I spent like two days like teach, like I would slam all my teaching into like two days and, and like not sleep. Yeah, and I would get out. Uh, yeah, and then I dropped out. 
Well, let's give a round of applause for that. I mean, that's something we thank you. That's something we really celebrate on this show. Uh, yeah. There's two dropouts in this room right now. Uh, um, we didn't make it quite as far as you did, but it's the same sentiment. I have never regretted it. Hey. Me neither. Yeah. I've been fine. I mean, yeah, you're fine, I think. Yeah, I think it turned out. You have a master's degree. You're, yeah, you do have. A, yeah, let's not downplay the master's yes, degree. Yes, yes. And it was, and I worked hard for it, and I learned a lot, and I think it was important. And I wouldn't, I just, what I would maybe do differently is um, not feel so shitty and divided about, like, it took me a long time to figure out that I wasn't going to be an academic. Oh, you thought you were going to be a professor? Yeah, I mean, that's why you get a PhD. I wondered why people did that. Yeah. <laughs> I was, I was like, what are these guys doing? This takes a long fucking time. What I mean, you doing? know, there's like universities and they have, I, have, I mean, it's true that it's, that concept is fading. Like is there's, fading. there's no jobs and it's like, it's just a shitty proposition professionally, but I, I have the utmost respect for it. You know, I would have done it if it was right for me, but it just wasn't. And also the program I was in, in some ways was a good fit because it was like, smart people who I learned a lot from and in other ways it was a really bad fit because it was like fucking full of sociopaths and it was like really intense. Mm. Well, what did you do when you got to New York? So I was uh, a little bit adrift because I had never Were you really using drugs. I was not using drugs. Good. No, no. No, I was very just... I mean I was like using drugs I'm How I'm long sure were you adrift? I've... I wasn't that adrift. You used the word, not me. Well, I was adrift professionally. Oh, okay. I understand. Yeah. Adrift professionally, I was a little depressed, but I had a very solid, you know, I've been with the same guy for many years. You know, we had a ha like a home, you know, we didn't have a house. We had like a small apartment. Thanks for that clarification. It was, no, we weren't. We were actually struggling financially. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was adrift because I wasn't, at that point, I was like 30 and I was like, shit, like I'm... Basically, I thought I was going to be an academic, and I was working towards it. And also, by that point, I had managed to get a green card, which allowed me to work all throughout my school. My visa only allowed me to teach yeah. at the school. Yeah. So that's what I did for the like meager amount of money they gave me. But I had never worked in America, apart from like a professor as part of the program. Like an, So at 30 years old, you were entering the workforce? I was entering the workforce in another country, and I was like wow, how do I do this? You know, I had worked, obviously, in Israel, and I did various things, but... Welcome to the big league, sweetie. Exactly. And I didn't know anyone either. I mean, I knew some people. I knew people from my program, and I knew, like, Ohad's friends in New York, but I, like, I'd never lived in New York full-time. I didn't have really any connections. So you were basically starting from ground zero. Yeah. So I clawed my way up ruthlessly. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I just... I managed to start adjuncting at NYU teaching composition because I had a master's and I had experience teaching. So that was like my first like, okay, I'm actually doing this at an institution that's not my own. And they're Were like, you writing? So I was like traumatized by my PhD experience, which was like with the dissertation, which I tried to write and sort of failed and or like totally failed on sort of. <laughs> and so... I started writing like art reviews for the Art Forum website. I knew this was coming. Art Forum is a classic first place, and first that... stop <laughs> in a young intellectual's <laughs> career. Artforum.com. That was sort of my first like clips, I guess, in America. I mean, I had written in Israel. And then actually I did write for Haaretz, the Israeli newspaper. I wrote stuff from New York for them. Mm, the correspondent from the New York Bureau. Some dispatches. The, yeah. yeah. I mean, I did a few interesting things. Like, for instance, one feature I did was I spent a day with Jacob the jeweler in his, <laughs> uh, in his store on 57th Street. And What era this is this? Was, well, this is like 2000 and... I want to say seven. So that's maybe. like the height of Jacob the oh, Jeweler. Oh yeah, yeah. No, it's really the height of Jacob the Jeweler. I think the the plug was that he was starting to sell his uh, watches in Israel and mm -hmm. some like one of the fancy rich rich people jewelry stores. And so it was like, let's introduce him to the yeah. Israeli reader. And um, this was when he was about to go to jail yes. for like money laundering. And so I was like terrified because I was like, I still don't have that much. Um, experience reporting, but I was like, okay, I'm going to spend a day with this guy and like, I'm going to have to ask him about his like forthcoming jail sentence. And that is intimidating. You know, he's like a, a guy who was going to jail. You know, he was like, <laughs> he's going to jail for money laundering. He's not going to jail for murder. Right. But you think he's got a body? He, I think he's got a body or two on him. No, I don't know. Jacob, <laughs> if you're listening, 
anyway, yeah. So no, but it was like intense because like so Fat Joe came through. Hell yeah. Diddy came through. They were um shooting for my super sweet sixteen with Quincy, yes, Kim's son, yes, and he came to like pour over the jewels with Jacob. <laughs> pour over the jewels. Pour over the jewels. And um, <laughs> don't and mind the reporter. I'm just pouring. I remember Diddy asking Quincy if he wants a pinky ring because every player has a pinky ring. Mm. I mean, that's great life advice, in my opinion. Yeah, I wish somebody would have told me that when I was 16. So you know, I did stuff like that. That sounds uh, fun. Yeah, no, it was like, I mean, it was in Hebrew, you know? Sure. Anyway, so I, you know, worked in NYU. Oh, then I started fact-checking in Us Weekly. Ooh. That was like the, that's mo- actually the, the gr- most amazing thing. I don't think I knew this about no, that's it. That's exciting. I don't, maybe I did, but I, How I forgot. How is that possible? This is like the How does fact-checking block. work there? Well, okay, so. <laughs> it's all wrong, so how does it work? So actually, it's not Chris. <laughs> I don't know about now, now that it's owned by like Pecker and, you know, the whole thing has shifted. But basically, actually, then and this this was the height of Celebrity Gossip magazine. So this was like, yeah, 2007, 2008. That's when I was flying a lot and I would buy every yeah. every issue every week and read them on the plane. All four, Life and Style, Us Weekly. I'm sure you read some stories I fact-checked. Oh, I'm sure I did. I mean, I worked on some heavy stories. Like, <laughs> can you please- Hard hitting. Give us a little, like a little, just give us some highlights. Well- they always knew to give me the stories about Lindsay Lohan when they had, because these were the years where Lindsay was starting to fuck up. I would say early downfall is the best period. Of yeah. So that was like, you know, like Sam Ronson and mm. like, just like the most interesting stuff. So to the question of like, how do you fact check at Us Weekly? Like, isn't it all made up? So the answer is it's spun. It can't, it might be spun for sure by publicists and stuff, you know, like a publicist being a source and being like, they're better than ever, says a source, you know. <laughs> but She looks great. Yeah, she's doing really well after coming out of rehab for like Xanax addiction or something. Sure. The thing is, they did have actually a big fact-checking department because they didn't want to get sued. So first of all, we would fact-check all the basic, you know, just like things of like dates and like where something is and, you know, all of that. But then there were transcripts of all the reporting we would actually check, you know, how it's like, they look great. Or like, she's pregnant as a source or whatever. Yeah. People actually said that. Nothing is made up. Yeah, yeah. I, I believe that. I think you're maybe referring to more like the PR people are like complicit and like yes. they're part of well, the of equation. Yeah, yeah, I don't think it's a full lie. Of course they are. But if a story is big enough that it blows past, you know, saying stuff like something a PR person would never confirm. Like yeah. someone is uh, is uh, cheating, you know, yeah. like... um. Uh, Eddie Cibrian and Leanne Rimes, you know, oh, what like the fuck. I mean, that was a big story. That's for the real heads only, right there. I know. I re- look. I remember that very clearly. Yeah. I mean, that stuff is not spot. That stuff is like it's real. Are they paying for tips? I don't think they paid for tips. The way they did it, as far as I know, you know, I wasn't deep. I was a freelancer. I wasn't like deep in the game. I would, of course, me being me, try to find out as much as possible and like sort of like chat up the editors. Most of we were very friendly and like intelligent and, you know, try to like see who's the source on this, you know, like what's like whatever, what's the situation. But I think the way they did it is they wouldn't pay for they would always say us doesn't pay for stories. Of course. But I think what they would do if they had like a cover story, like just I just saw like um, uh, pop culture died in 2009 that um, a must follow a must follow. He had like the. Um, 10 years ago, like the tabloid covers from 10 years ago. So it was like Ali Sims, Britney's cousin. Remember? That's a deep cut. That's deep. So she was like her cousin, but she was cousin like in, like in Louisiana, it's cousin, you know, she wasn't really her cousin. They're not related. They're not related. (laughs) Let's just be clear. They're not related. The two are not related. But she lived with her during Britney because Britney Spiral was another story. That was, that was, that was just, maybe the biggest of the era. I mean, there was like Sam Lutfi, yes. Adnan, Galib, you know, all of that period. So Ali Sims was on the cover. Like there was a portrait of her on the cover. Like Britney's not crazy, says cousin, you know. <laughs> so they didn't pay her for the story. But I think the way they tricked it was... And I'm sorry if this is incorrect. Don't sue me. But the way I think it went is that they would pay her for the photo shoot. Mm. So it was like, we're paying you to put, we're paying you to model. Like we're paying you to. We'll pay you 10 grand to stand in the studio. So they didn't pay for the story. 
Mm, I love I love shit like that. I think that's what happened, but I'm not 100 percent sure. That sounds reasonable. Though. That's what that, I've been told. That New Yorker story about the god Harvey from TMZ yeah. and the stories about how they have this entire black market ring of paying the service industry in Los Angeles. But don't they actually admit that they pay? I mean, I think they Yeah, admit. they admit that they pay, but yeah. the way that like the guy snuck in to get a picture of Whitney Houston's dead body in the bathtub, like paid off a maid and pay, it's just like it's not a lot of money. I'm talking like a thousand bucks or, you know what I mean? It's not, it's not it's just yeah. people that are animals. They just, they yeah. love the hunt. It's people that are animals. And it's people that I think also, if you work in the service industry in Hollywood, you hate these people because sure. they treat you like shit. This is true for like the big stories, the thing about the payment, but a lot of the time when it's sources, it would often be like, you know, the facialist or like yeah. the yoga teacher or like the assistant to the assistant. Mm -hmm. And those people didn't get paid, but they would be cultivated yeah. by editors and writers. And I think it made them feel like they're getting back, you know? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I'd say, are you calling those folks? Oh, so I wasn't. No, I mostly wouldn't know who the sources were. The reporters would give me the transcripts of everything. So it could be like someone who was sitting at dinner, you know, next to like Scarlett Johansson and whoever who heard her fighting. And it would be like, they seemed very angry. And it's like some lady. <laughs> they seemed very angry. You know, some it's lady. like at one point, like she got up to go to the bathroom and she like pushed his hand away, you know? Yeah. So there's that, but then there's like the much more intense stuff, like people like the stylist who actually knows, knows the person intimately, the celebrity and like knows shit that goes down, but is for whatever reason, either disgruntled or just a gossip or just like a bitch or- There's so many reasons. But tells real stuff that's like- yeah, Dark. Dark. The stylist knows all. The stylist is a paid friend. Yeah. Stylist number one paid friend job in Hollywood. Yeah. Because they're around all the time. If yeah. you're a female celebrity, your stylist is around. Like, that's who you're with yeah. all the time. Like, more than your agent or your and manager. And they see them, and, you know, they're privy to, like, what I would imagine is the most intimate thing for, like, a woman in Hollywood, which is her body yeah. and her appearance and her weight. And it's just so intense, I would imagine. Yeah, and that's the number one thing that people want to pay to know about. Yeah. I'm saying to buy that yeah. story from. Yeah. yeah. My, my dream is to know everything about strangers in their lives. I mean, I don't want to know everything. I don't want to know if they're like real perverts or something. Like, I don't want to know that. All that's the fun stuff, though. I want to know that they hate themselves. <laughs> I want to know that they feel self-doubt. I want to know their sexual fantasies. Again, if they're not like horribly perverse, I feel like I don't is, want to part. I feel that, like that but. is a driving force in your career choices <laughs> <laughs> because from what we've learned so far, it sounds like going to the New Yorker, you guys. Yeah. <laughs> Log on, David Revnik. I hope you're not listening. I can promise you, you have not made a mistake. That's a fun your first job me. though in New York, I think. Yeah. So I felt incredibly lucky to have that job. Even though it was like a starter freelance yeah, job. Yeah. Well, then like, what else did you have going on, you know, job wise? I was teaching at NYU. Then I started teaching at RISD. And at the same time, I was like fact checking at Us Weekly and writing. That's and a real mix of and high and low. Right. I mean, I hardly made money, but it was like an interesting, and I didn't have, I have a kid now. So obviously I, I needed to Yeah, how old is up. she? She's six and a half now. So I needed to like, you know, sort Solid of, footing. Yeah, I needed more solid footing. So... At the time, it was actually the right mix yeah, for me. Yeah, that makes sense. So I started teaching at RISD because I was starting to write more and more about art. And like, as you know, Chris, one of my students at RISD was James Franco, which I always love to dine out mm. on. So She does dine out on this. So let's talk about Jimmy. <laughs> Jimmy Franks. First of all, Jimmy Franks, I want to say on record, Disaster Artist might be the best movie of the year. I love it. I love Disaster Artist, It was amazing. Too. I thought it was great, and I thought he was great. He and was great. Jimmy, I don't know what's up with Time's Up with you, but <laughs> I, and I don't want to speak to that, uh, but I love Disaster Artist. I thought it was really great, and I was very happy for him. So you were his teacher. I was his teacher, yeah. But I should note that at the time, James was attending multiple programs. Yeah, he was also going to NYU, up and right? down the Yale. Northeastern Corridor. <laughs> And so it's not that impressive that I was his professor. Well, I mean, that's the whole thing on that Mark Maron podcast that he, where he talks about disaster artists. It's amazing because he's just oh, like- Oh, I should listen to that. He's just like, yeah, you know, it's the classic story. Like, I'm rich. I'm famous. I'm not happy. Like, nothing is fulfilling. So I'm just going to go to school. He's like, if I can do one, I can do a bunch. <laughs> that's literally what he says. If I can do one, I can do a bunch. And so he was doing like four at a time. And then he became the teacher, correct? Mm, not at RISD. Not but. at RISD. But I think he did- 
I mean, you know, when you're a grad student, you're often. I don't know, uh, actually. So okay. Uh, so I'm not sure exactly what his situation was, but it's not rare to teach as I a grad student. Yeah, yeah, sure. Okay. Um, Did he show up to class when you were his teacher? So, okay. So the way it went, and even though I, I love, I could talk about it all day, essentially, like, barely anything happened. And I wish <laughs> more did because I would have more material. Just to say, just to say, though, I would never, like, tell a student secrets or anything. I mean, even if he's famous. Then why are you on this fucking show? Well, the door is right behind <laughs> you. Okay, so you can go ahead and fucking see your way no, out. No, I, you know, I would love to know them. But you wouldn't tell. You me. I would know the share secrets. them, and he shared nothing with me, which I was disappointed about. Not because I would have done anything with it, but just because I, I would like have had. Have, the... I feel like you could have forged a friendship with him pretty easily. So the thing was, it was very awkward. Like, so basically, the semester I taught him was a semester of one-on-one -on -one meetings. It wasn't a classroom situation. I was basically like, at that point, the advisor to the MFA written thesis at the program at RISD where he was. So that's even better. That's even a more. Yeah, I don't have that much to report. He was like, <laughs> he was filming Spring Breakers at the time. This is the prime. This is prime. It's prime Franco. Franco. Cause this is when he was like a hottie. Yeah, he was he was he was very good looking, which was also so basically okay. So here's I'm setting the scene. So I am maybe. Eight months after giving birth, okay? I'm traveling to RISD on the same day, back and forth on the train. I'm pumping on the train because I'm still breastfeeding and I'm gone for the whole day. I am very unglamorous. As glamorous as I am right now, I am less so. Baby weight, like tired, not sleeping, not making enough money. So it's a weird power dynamic. Because like, I'm the professor. You have this like extremely famous, very handsome movie star. And then you're like this like, ill-paid, chubby, 30-ish Jewish woman. Great description. <laughs> That's your bio. I'm editing his, like, writing. You know, I'm telling him this doesn't work, this does work. This was quite minimal. It's not like I worked intensely with him at all or knew him at all, but the few meetings we did have, it was weird. And I would imagine that a lot of the other people felt the same way, I would guess. Well, how's the writing though? Not good? You know, it was a particular type of writing. Don't dance around my fucking question. Um, it, it wasn't that great. The thesis was... Lacking? I mean, you know, they're always lacking. I don't know, so I want you to tell okay. me it wasn't yeah, good. Yeah, so they're always lacking. It was fine. It was fine. James, it was fine. <laughs> it was fine. I feel like you're trying to maintain a relationship with him over the airwaves. How did, how did he accept the crit? Yeah, that's the real question. Oh, he was fine. He was, he was, accept yeah. He's an actor, okay? He's been through it. He's worked with some of the greatest directors of our time. So does Jimmy Franks follow? So, okay, to your question. Very interesting question because... <laughs> Very interesting I don't know, question. <laughs> I don't know if you've heard of the Franco follows. No. Do you remember this, Chris? I don't, actually. What? This sounds like Watergate of our time, though, so okay. go on. Okay. Look, the light just shined on I her know. face. See, the <laughs> sun, literally God wants to hear about the Franco follows. So, Franco follows. So, about a year ago, on Twitter, suddenly, Franco follows me. Dun, dun. And I was like, what the fuck? James just followed me. I can't believe it. Then it turns out, so he followed, let's say he followed, like, maybe 300 people. And then suddenly he followed like 400 more. So it was still like a very small number. 
And the list was curated. Mm. I mean, it had like some really famous people and whatever and politics websites or whatever. But then it weirdly had like niche media people and like some weird artists and some like edgy like Instagram starlet. Keep describing me. Anyway, so everybody was agog. Everybody was like, is this real? Like, (laughs) yeah. So he followed and I was, there was no communication. I think I tweeted something funny about it. Did he unfollow? Okay, hold on. (laughs) Then like three days later, he suddenly follows on Instagram. And on Instagram as well, he followed a number of people, yes. not that many, but similar, you know, a group. similar pattern we're seeing. So I was just uh, beside myself. <laughs> uh, I had no explanation, and other people. So he followed some some people I know, but it was a mystery because there was no like interaction, and it was yeah. sudden. This lasted for like maybe a month or so, and then he just uh, deleted both his Instagram and his Twitter, and that was the Franco follows. <laughs> Look, the way that she chronicles a celebrity follow is is literally like it's it's Well, the way you cultivate your own celebrity follows I think is fascinating. The John Mayer follow saga has been it, I mean, there's a book in there somewhere. Yeah. I mean, this for me it was one of the most formative events of 2017, although John hasn't been on Twitter since the new year, basically. We think John's taking a little time off to collect himself. He's in Montana. He's probably, I think he's learned to make beats from what I can tell on Instagram. Make beats? Yeah, like. Oh, beats. Yeah, <laughs> not not the vegetable. Yeah, I was like, oh. It was interesting for me because, I mean, John's been a longtime follower right. of mine on right. Twitter. Just, you know, I think he saw something he liked and just smashed the follow. When when did he smash that follow? It's been quite a while. I couldn't give you a date. It was like right before you. Come on now. Absolutely no, no. not. It was not. No? It was, watch no? your tongue. I want to defend Chris and say <laughs> that it's true. He has been following him for, I feel like, at least two years before he smashed this follow. Not two years. I would, I should let you lie and and make myself look better. Um, but no, that's not true. It's It's been... It's been eight months. Eight months. <laughs> I mean, we have some personal connections I won't go into here on the podcast. Of course. Uh, because you're not like me. You don't just reveal all I don't, about no. your celebrity connections. I'm one of them, so I have to kind of keep the, sure. the curtain up. It's an exclusive club. <laughs> Actually, it was related to this podcast because it was it was oh, a 99. Yes. It was, I remember now. He lived in Atlanta. He's from Connecticut, but when he was getting famous, he lived in Atlanta. Okay. And I Why made, was he living in Atlanta? Um, I don't really know, actually. I, I don't know. I think he might have moved there to like make music. I, yeah, I, I think maybe that was it. There's a, there's a singer-songwriter scene he really wanted to be a part of. Oh, okay. <laughs> He's playing Eddie's Attic every Tuesday. <laughs> uh, but there was this well-known moment, if you're our age, but there was when the Verve Bittersweet Symphony came out, 99X, the alternative radio station. 99X. The DJ was like... This shit is so hot. Um, but he just played it for 45 minutes straight. Just over, like, yeah, looped, just yeah. looped it. Nothing makes me happier than that. That's incredible. Yeah, I think you referenced that. And then John saw it and retweeted it. Yeah. So actually, yeah. he must have followed me before that. Because, <laughs> oh, he Because saw how would he know? Because I didn't tag him in it. Maybe someone else retweeted and he saw it. It's all possible. Again, all these personal connections, just wait till I get the flick. You know what I'm saying? It's it's gonna happen. It's in the pipe. I, I'm gonna get the flick. I didn't get the flick with Gwyneth at the Goop conference, which is crushing. But Mare is obviously better. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Romantically less interesting for yes. me. Yes. But good nonetheless. Yes. The relief that you felt. When when John finally It was the relief felt around the world. Yeah. It remind us like what was what was it that tipped the scale for John Mayer for him to uh, smash that follow? I mean I begged and I begged and I begged. <laughs> But he was like, he heard the call. He heard the clarion call. I think he finally cracked, you know, he finally folded like a leaf. She was persistent. I was very persistent. Yeah, the campaign was strong. The campaign was strong. I think it was strong. I think I just wouldn't give up. And uh, do you have anybody to thank? Do you want to thank any of your, you know? I mean, I want to thank you, Chris. Oh, well. Uh, That's not what I was expecting, but thank you. I feel like the mutuals helped. The mutuals always help. Yeah. I didn't know if you wanted to thank God. Your mom, um, the Academy. No, I just want to thank the platform <laughs> <laughs> for allowing me to have so much fun. That's true, though. The third wall of celebrity has been destroyed by Twitter and Instagram. Yeah. They can just check you out. There's no barrier anymore. Yeah. And thank God for that. Incredible. All right. All right. Let's let's jump back a little bit. I, I feel like we've skipped over a step or two. Yes. So how and when did you start ramping up the writing? I mean, like the, the freelance writing, like... And how does T Magazine fit into all this? When did you begin becoming, as you said, a more uh, 
public-facing prestige personality <laughs> in the stories you're known for and on the uh, Twitter.com website. So basically, I would say that maybe like four years ago, things started to shift because I got a full-time job at T. I, I became the copy chief, whereas I was just freelancing there before. And even though my job was full-time and actually pretty demanding in some ways, it kind of gave me the security to write more. And I just started writing for more and more places and sort of like honing my voice in the areas that I was interested in writing about. And that's not immediate. It took like years, you know, to sort of like get that going. While in the meantime, having for the first time in my life, a job that's like a proper desk job. That's not, you know, I mean, I always worked obviously, but like suddenly I was like at a work desk. Yeah. You're in the skyscraper every day. Yeah. Which is uh, when I joined Twitter. <laughs> I think that's a classic <laughs> reason to join Twitter. I haven't been on it that long. Maybe maybe three and a half years or something. Well, that's Yeah, that's not very long at all. Yeah. I don't know. I think people knew me from my writing a little bit. So some people followed me. And then, I don't know, I just felt like I had no agenda. But I became sort of, I mean, obviously, I'm totally addicted to it, Uh to the platform and uh <laughs> that's one of my favorite things about it that it is such a public addiction it's very public it's very hard to let go of it you're doing drugs in public all day every day doing drugs in public i love yeah. it i just fell for it hard i really did and um i just uh started like being weirder and weirder and i don't even know if i'm that weird but i just like no you are i <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I just have these interests that I very publicly pursue and talk about. I mean, everybody does that, I guess, on Twitter, but they're just no, like. No, everybody doesn't do that on Twitter. I think that's what makes There's people... a lot of observers. Just, I you think, know. yeah, I yeah. think the the honesty works. Yeah, it's sort of like I bring some deepish cuts, you know, which some people recognize and a lot of people are like, what's she talking about? But then I also sort of talk about my life in ways that are both extremely revealing, but also like opaque, I think. It's not confessional, you know, it's kind of performative, but it's also I talk about how much I hate myself. And like, you know, I mean, you know, I, I don't like I don't try to pretend. Yeah, I really like Cymbalta as well. It's great. Yeah, it's done wonders for me. Yeah, life changing. Life changing. Sure. Yeah. yeah, life changing. I was just thinking about it this morning. I was just thinking how grateful I still am. Same. Yeah, shout out. Same. Cymbalta. I think that's where we're supposed to say sponsor the pod. <laughs> I think if I've, if I've listened to enough podcasts, I think that's when you're supposed to say that. I mean, obviously, there's an element of pretense about it, I'm sure. Like, my character on social media isn't, like, who I am in real life exactly. But I think there's enough overlap that some people are maybe, like, interested in it because they're like, you know, she's in some ways keeping it real. I think you're keeping it. I mean, yeah. look, I was. I think it's more similar than you think. It is me in a lot of ways. It really is. I mean, often I'm like, oh, I'm so depressed today, but I wouldn't really be like, I've been thinking about my childhood and about the day. You know, it's yeah. never really the totally serious. The platform does not lend itself to that. People do it. I know all the people time. do it, but I don't think that's what people are looking to read. I mean, I think some people find that comforting, comforting, and empowering, and yeah. I respect that. But I just uh, there's always that hint of humor. There's got to be because <laughs> without that, we're gonna die. Yeah. Well, every day. I wake up hoping for a better timeline. <laughs> but before we wrap up, uh, do you have any plans for The New Yorker? Like stories in the works? Um, or things you know that they want you to tackle? Because what, uh, what was that piece recently? The, um, the, the, the Heidi and Spencer story yes. was for The New Yorker.com. It was for The New Yorker.com. And I feel like that did numbers. I think it did. I think it was successful. I was very excited to have the opportunity to sit down with Spencer. You've forged a friendship. I have forged a friendship. Last time I was in L.A., I met Heidi and Spencer for lunch with Baby Gunner, and it was great to see them. I got Baby Gunner a nice onesie so, on Robertson. Wow, wow. So <laughs> I know you genuinely like them. Yeah. But it's also entertaining. It's super entertaining, of course. And I think Spencer would be the first to but he, I know think he, that. Do you think he feels the same way about you? I don't know. I can't speak to him exactly. Mutual appreciation society. I think, we, I think we appreciate each other. Because neither of you has a friend like the other. I think so, yeah. I think I would guess that for him, I'm like, you know, the Jewish, chubby, the spectacle, <laughs> you know, et cetera, et cetera. No, I think, I think like for him, I'm like, 
oh, she writes for these like smart places, but yeah. she also knows stuff about pop culture and is interested in it. And for me, I'm like, oh, he's like in some ways king of trash, but in other ways he's like very intelligent and like super amusing and knows what he's talking about. So I think uh, <laughs> he completes me, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> So so any sense what you'll be uh, tackling I, first? I don't know yet. And of course, I would have to feel it out. And I also said, you know, I can also write about and I have written quite a lot about like stuff that's more highbrow or that's. Boring. But I think they want, you know, obviously, I think they're realizing in different areas, I think also in like food and, in you know, in different types of coverage that they have. It's a very important part of contemporary culture to talk about celebrities and a lot of the conflicts that we're experiencing as a society right now often get played out on the canvas of celebrity culture. And I think they they know that. Um, hopefully I can I can do a variety of things that are interesting to me. I'd love to you know see a piece where you're in like a like war torn demilitarized zone. <laughs> You know, uh, yeah. just on assignment. Send her over. Yeah, on assignment. Send yeah. her over. I mean, I don't know about that. Another part <laughs> of my thing is that because I'm from Israel and I come from a family that was always pretty politically involved and um, pretty left wing. And it was a house where we cared about those things. And my parents still do. And I still do. Certainly. I think it's a heavy context to come from in a lot of ways. And I think I was always like, okay, but I also want to do some bullshit, you know? I was like, this is important too, you know? And the things are connected. Like those things aren't like separate. I mean, look at the presidency. I mean, that's the moment we're living in. Places like the New Yorker know. So, yeah. Well, so what's the uh, what's the timeline? Like, what's next? I mean, I'm starting in like a month, so... Are you taking some time off? I'm taking a little bit of time off. Some much-needed time off. Some much-needed time <laughs> off. And so I have one more week of tea, and then I'm taking a little bit of time off. Uh, we're going to Mexico City for a few days. Oh, a very trendy spot right now. I know. I So I hear I have never been. We're excited. I've been. Cosme for lunch? I went for dinner, but I went a long time ago. I went like six years ago. So you were ahead of the trend, (sighs) as always. No, no, I just, it was an easy place to go. You know, it was cheap and like fun. Like, so I'm going to try to relax like for a few days here. Then we're going to go to Mexico City. And then um, I'm going to come back and start my new job. I, I, I don't know what my first piece will be about yet well congratulations again and Thank you. Um, and thanks so much for coming on the show and sharing your origin story with the listenership oh my god this was incredible we appreciate it i'm i'm honored to have been able to share with you well you know i want to i want this to be a one-stop shop you know so yeah no it really is i feel like ask. i i feel like people can come here for all their needs mm. <laughs> wow i'm just on this wave lately wow you know, you're actually the first guest here in the new Stude. Really? The new Global, Global headquarters. headquarters. I feel like I've been through a journey with you guys. That was the point. Yeah. And I'm glad that we were here to hold your hand through the whole thing. I'm a changed woman. Wow, wow. Big words, big words. Thanks again, and uh, hopefully you have better luck getting uptown. Oh, my God. Okay. Fuck the trains. Fuck the MTA. Fuck the trains. Fuck 12. Give us public services that work because it's important for society's makeup. Wow, wow. (laughs) On that note, I'm good. I'm going to lunch. Thanks for that. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Thanks. You've been listening to Public Announcement. I'm James Ellis. And I'm Chris Black. Today's show was produced by Jim Nicholas. And edited by Jose Guzman. No, the God? Not yet. Fair. Fair. Uh, don't get me wrong. He did a great job. Um, excellent work. Impressive. Right out of the gate. Like he said, he's a smart guy. Smart. Sharp. I'm smart as a motherfucker. Thanks again to our guest, Nomi Fry. Find her on Twitter.com. Turn the fuck up. And look for her important cultural coverage in The New Yorker. Going to The New Yorker, you guys. And if you are currently clicking and surfing, I would... Um, I would implore you yes. to go to the publicannouncement.org 
destination homepage. Yes, exactly. Because it has been updated, baby. We got new shit. We introduced a secondary font. We introduced new columns. Just go check the shit. Click on the about page. We got new shit popping everywhere on that website. You will click and serve and you will be pleased with what you find. And since we have this fully outfitted studio that we've been talking about all episode, you can expect more pods for your head top in a more timely manner. Not every week, but let's not get crazy, but more often than we were doing it before. So, you know, get that wherever podcasts are, are available. You know what I'm saying? Whatever you use. I don't know what you use. I only use the Apple shit because I'm brand loyal, but you might use some other shit. Google Play head ass. Public announcement. Coming to you live to tape from the public announcement global headquarters. In the heart, in the heart of Little Italy. Thank you for humoring us with that. Sure. I'll say it again.